Hey, it's Nathan and Sean again. We want to welcome you back to the 13-week Bible Season 2. Today we're in Episode 10, ahead of Week 9's reading. As we continue this expansive journey through the Bible in just 13 weeks, we're thoroughly enjoying it ourselves and hope you're finding it helpful as well. Today we're previewing the rest of Jeremiah, all of the Lamentations, and on through Ezekiel 23. It's also worth noting that we're rushing down the other side of our journey ever closer to its conclusion than its beginning. The Jesus story in the Gospels is just around the bend. A little more of the New Testament today brings us almost all the way through the significant uh, of the three major prophetic books around the last years of the kingdom of Judah. So we'll talk about that. Um, just briefly, Sean, how are you today? I'm well, Nathan. How are you? Good to see you again and talk to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is, uh, just for our listeners, we are pre-recording this and um, we started in 2023, took a break for Christmas and New Year's, and now we're back uh, early January. That's continuing right. to record here. So we're all well, families are well, so we're, we're good. Absolutely, absolutely. It is, it is good to see you again, like I said, and to get back into this conversation. Yeah, so as I've come back into it in the new year, I've used more of a weak approach. In fact, I sped my audio up even faster this time to 150, 150%. And that got me through it fast on my drive time and then left time for me to uh, peruse the books, which I didn't get sort of so looking at the print text, which unfortunately I didn't get as much time in the print text, but I'm kind of experimenting with that combination of fast audio mm -hmm. and then sort of going back and looking at the print highlights in the latter part of the week. It seems for me to be a good uh, combination of being able to sort of hear the whole thing and then go back and, and, and uh, reflect on different areas of highlights as I go through that. Yeah, that's cool. Can I ask a technical question? When you, when you are listening, what, what are you using to listen? Is there an app, a particular app you're using? Uh, Bible Gateway. Bible Gateway. I'm sorry, no, not Bible. No, 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 that was a mistake. I am using the Bible app, the one from... Yeah, um, from uh, like... Uh, Life Church. Yeah, Life Church. So yeah, Life that's Church, one yeah. I use as well, but and I haven't looked too deeply into it, but I could not figure out for the life of me how to speed up the reading. Yeah, so if you click on the mic, the speaker button, and when you're in the app, if you click on the speaker button in the top corner... Okay. All right. Sorry. This is probably not. What oh, no, you it's want. fine. But this is a question no, it's that fine. people would have, maybe. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so if okay. you click on the speaker button in the top right corner, um, and then a menu comes up, a small menu just up from the bottom. Got you. Okay. And at the bottom of that, it has, uh, should say 1.0 on yours. Okay. All right. And if you tap that, you can speed it up. Yeah. Is it there? Uh, I'm. I'll have to look later. Cause okay. Reason. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah. Let this me know. It is there. Maybe it's not there on the translation you're using. That's a possibility. Yeah, that is a possibility. Cause I, I, 
like I said before in previous episodes, I do occasionally, only occasionally listen, um, but I do read more than I listen. And uh, one of the reasons I did that is because I couldn't figure out how to speed it up because it is, it is a lot slower to listen at 1.0 right. one time than it is to read it yourself. So um, right. anyway, yeah. Okay, I see. Okay, I got you. I'm I'm with you now, Nathan. I see it. This is, opens up a whole new world to me. Thank you. Oh, amazing. That's what we want to do here. <laughs> That's what we're here for, right? Yeah, I was really surprised that um, I was actually getting some important insights with the faster speed. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we a person could go so fast that if you don't pick, you just it's yeah. just noise. But the speed actually made a, a positive difference. Mm-hmm. And I think focus too, you mentioned sort of how it's easy to lose lose focus when you're listening. The faster speed actually helps uh, my me zero my attention in. Yeah, yeah. I, I could Better than if it's slow. So, Good thoughts. I'll try that between now and our next, our next uh, episode. Yeah. And uh, just a couple of other things that I thought were helpful. And you may have a word you'd want to comment on from your journey so far. Um, but something that I thought of this week is what do we learn like about the prophet kind of incidental to the story? Because Jeremiah is not written as a self, uh, as an autobiography of Jeremiah's experience. It's a collection of his messages with little moments where, you know, his voice comes out. He complains to God about how he's being treated. He talks about his call. So there are these moments but it's not a bio, an autobiography where the whole book sort of focuses on the story of Jeremiah. But it is curious to kind of pay attention to the moments where the prophet's experience, the prophet's lifestyle, the prophet's voice comes through more personally than kind of the, the message that he's delivering to the people. Mm. Yeah, I think Jeremiah has been often referred to appropriately enough as the weeping prophet Mm. where you can definitely see and hear and feel the pathos, the, the passion, the, the deep emotional stirrings of his heart where he's not simply delivering a message from God. I mean, these, these are his people and Mm -hmm. we probably it's probably hard for us on some level to understand and appreciate the degree to which the people of Israel, their identity was tied up with the nation of Israel. You know, we, Hmm. we, we are highly individualized in our context today and we don't have as big of a group identity. Maybe, the closest we can relate to it is, and maybe this is a terrible analogy, but it's just where I am, is almost in um, in sports. Um, hmm. Like, for example, the Olympics. Like, we feel uh, many, many times a very deep sense of pride and identity with that athlete that is representing our mm-hmm. country. Um, so we get a we get a sense of pride and. And, you know, their failure feels like our failure, et cetera. Mm. Um, we might get it in, we might get it to some extent religiously uh, because 
you know, when we're a part of a religious community, we, uh, you know, we do have some sense of identity with that community as a whole and what happens to the religious community as a whole, we feel as well. But I don't think still to the same degree that, because not only did they have that strong sense of emotional identity, but they also did believe from a religious theological perspective that there was significance to the corporate body of of Israelites. Um, so that's what jumps out to me when it comes to kind of Jeremiah on a personal level is the degree to which he was so incredibly intertwined with mm. the destiny and future, so to speak, of of Judah in this case, which was a part of the whole Israel plan on a broader level. Yeah, and I think as you were talking, you kind of alluded to it, but just the idea for Jeremiah was that this was uh, a nation that was divinely ordained, like God mm-hmm. had had organized the Israelites um, through Abraham. Well, they that was the, the progeny of Abraham, and he had delivered them from Egypt and had big dreams for the people of Israel. So I think there was some of that that Jeremiah was was connecting with. I think that was a big thing for Jeremiah, that he this was a huge failure because God had big dreams for this people, and they were just falling short, completely falling short. Yeah, 100%. And we kind of, you know, and, and, and when we were talking about Isaiah, I don't know if I... I brought this up, but there were literally places um, like Isaiah 5, for example, where there's this vineyard and God Mm. has these dreams for the vineyard. He looked for grapes, like he was hoping Mm -hmm. that something would happen in the vineyard. And yeah, it brought forth thorns and, um, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't lead to a healthy crop. And so you see that in, in different mm-hmm. places where God, yeah, he has dreams. It sounds funny to use that term in reference to God, like God has dreams. Um, and I can't pretend to explain all the ins and outs of how an all-knowing God can have hopes and dreams. But I think scripture does kind of paint that picture where, yeah, God has hopes and dreams for, for his people. That's not mm-hmm. to, um, that's not to imply because we can get onto the nice here very quickly where as though God is like wholly dependent on us and like it's mm. up to us to kind of bail God out, so to speak. Um, but there is a tension there, I think. There is a tension and we've, we've chatted about it. Uh, I think it came up in a text exchange. We had <laughs> something related to this. Um, and I use the word dreams just because it's a more kind of understandable idea where we're recognizing that God's God's um, will for humanity, you might say, is not always carried out. And so that's why I convey it. That, that's where I think the dream language is sort of helpful. This is God's vision for the human family, but the human family doesn't necessarily get on board. And that's what that's part of what we see. Isaiah um, has pieces of that, this this temporal prosperity that Israel never realizes. Um, the 
book of Ezekiel, which we won't hit on as far as this part of it this week, but the latter part of Ezekiel has references again that to me seem to speak to a temporal prosperity for Israel that again is never realized. So I, I think that there is, I don't think it's a stretch to see some of these dreams being realized in the, the revelation scenario of a new heaven and a new earth, which we'll get to uh, at the end of this reading. So I think there's some application there, but I do get the sense that there were dreams that God had for his people that were temporal, that were in the flow of human history, that were not some future apocalyptic uh, or, or post-apocalyptic vision. So I think, I think that's where the dream part comes in for me. Yeah, and I think what you're touching on, it actually has huge theological implications that comes into dialogue with or or maybe in contradiction to you know certain theological perspectives like a view of God where actually God always gets what God wants and in mm. fact God actually ordains everything that ever happens and you know you and I I I don't think buy into that perspective and I think it's hard to read the prophets and conclude yep. that God always got gets what God wants now there are places like in these prophets where you know the analogy is and I think it's Jeremiah the potter and the clay like the potter mm-hmm. shapes the clay however the potter wants to and so that was mm-hmm. lend itself to this belief that God is orchestrating and shaping every little thing that happens to, to Judah and I don't think that's what the the metaphor is trying to fully communicate. Um, I do think again and again you read throughout the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel that God is frustrated. That's leg- mm-hmm. he's legitimately frustrated. Mm-hmm. He's not. It's not just uh, a big fancy theological term is anthropomorphism. It's not just ascribing human mm. attributes to God that aren't really true about God. I think it really is. God's frustrated. Mm. He's sad. He's disappointed. He had hoped things would go differently, but because human beings truly have agency, truly have freedom, Mm -hmm. they can unfortunately crush God's dreams. Not that Mm -hmm. in the end, ultimately it won't all work out because it will, it will ultimately work out. Mm -hmm. But, but a lot of the, battles so to speak in the meantime don't fully align Mm. with what god had hoped right and that just reminds me of the messiness that that god is working in the flow of the human story and working with human beings and that his work is so complex we had a a a 13-week bible live conversation last night with a group of folks going through the Bible right now. Um, And it was our first conversation because we just started uh, this 2024 read through. And that was one of the things that came up is this is really complex. God can't just move. um, How would I say that whatever God does has ramifications Nothing that he does unfolds without implications for some part of the created world. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and, and then 
if he works in one town, there's implications for, say, another town. If he works with one nation, there's implications for another nation. If he helps one. So the the threads connecting the story together are so complex mm-hmm. and vast that it just quickly becomes a mind bending <laughs> just to. Yeah. If you think about it too much, it becomes mind bending. Well, I mean, very simply, if I'm praying for rain because I want my crops to grow and you're praying for sunshine, you know, if God answers my prayer, he doesn't answer yours. So, right. So, I mean, he answers, but he doesn't give you what you want if, if he's right. giving me what I want. So, I mean, I'm glad, you know, those types of decisions are way above my pay scale. And I'm glad right. we have an omniscient and all knowing that is to say, and an all powerful God who's somehow able to and is trying to work out all those dynamics. Yeah. And you and I do believe, we're firm believers in in a God who answers prayer. Absolutely. But also embracing, recognizing the fact that this is far more complicated, that when answers don't come at the timing I want them. It shows up in Scripture, Daniel. There's a section of Daniel that we'll get to where this comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, prayers there are complicated things going on beyond the reach of our prayers that um, affect what happens and how things unfold. It's a very complicated calculus that God has to to work through. Right, mm-hmm. right, yeah. Um, another thing that is interesting in the story, which we, we sort of got on a little bit of a side <laughs> trail there, but these are important side trails. That's one of the reasons mm-hmm. we do the podcast is because these are some of the things that we need to think about as we're going through the bigger picture. Um, but what do we learn incidentally about the current or the local culture and circumstances? I think that's interesting as well. Um, for instance, the color of, I think it's the Assyrian uniforms is mm-hmm. mentioned. Incidentally, I don't remember what the color was, <laughs> but it was uh, the the Assyrian, uh, the garb of the Assyrian soldiers was noted. Again, it was incidental to the book. Nothing in Jeremiah was not making a point to talk about the Assyrians uh, specifically, but in the process of delivering his message that uh came up yeah no those are you're you're sounding like a good historian because you know when when you are looking at at history and data you um you ask those types of questions like what is what what can i learn about the audience to whom i'm writing or -hmm. they're writing and what can i learn about the person who's writing and um yeah, all those types of things have, they, they may have little relative value, but they, they do fill in the picture for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah uh, 10, that was last week's reading. And I wanted to just touch base real quick because we're entering a, a really significant era with the the writings of Jeremiah. Um and before that, Isaiah. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they're, they're like these three major prophets. Um, the ministry of Isaiah begins with King Isaiah, goes through Hezekiah. The ministry of Jeremiah begins with the reign of Josiah, who came after Hezekiah. And then um, 
goes into the 11th year of Zedekiah. So that's the captivity. Jeremiah ends up living through and into the captivity period um, by the Babylonians. And then there is Ezekiel. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah do have some overlap, but Ezekiel is, is um, he is lodged among the exiles rather than being with the people of Judah. And part of the reason this is important is because, you know, last week's reading started in the, the kingdom, the United Kingdom period, in the sense that Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon were products of that era. And now we've shifted dramatically with Isaiah and now Jeremiah and Ezekiel into this time where the whole thing is finally collapsing and falling under Babylonian um, power. Like this, this big dream that the, that uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon are, are in the early stages of, it's, it's almost unraveled. And it's unraveling in the time of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Um, and I think that's just powerful to think about as we're reading the books to understand the time in which these prophets are speaking. Why is Jeremiah called the weeping prophet? Because he's living at the time when his people are falling apart because they're determined to worship idols. And that habit is finally coming to bear fruit. So big Solomon, even, you know, if we go back and think about last week's reading, Ecclesiastes um, and Song of Solomon reminds us of, of King Solomon, his idolatrous playing with idolatry plant seeds, seeds that were planted in Egypt, in fact, as we find out in our reading, um, but then were nurtured by Solomon, were nurtured by other kings, and now those seeds begin to bear dramatic fruit in this time frame. Israel's already fall, Israel um, falls during Isaiah's ministry, the, the 10 tribes of Israel, they fall during Isaiah's ministry, um, but then Judah falls uh, during during Jeremiah and Ezekiel's ministry. So just a tragic, we're in a tragic time uh, of the story. Absolutely. It, that may be an understatement, just a terrible, terrible time. And I do like your point, and I think it's it's good to, to underscore this, just the, even the geographical context from which Jeremiah and Ezekiel write. You know, you have mm -hmm. one person who is, in captivity, Ezekiel, yeah. and then you have one person who is not in captivity. He's still in Judah, in Jeremiah. So, so their perspectives, and I know you know to some people this might be a strange thought, but the writers of Scripture, yes, inspired of God, yes, but their writing is within the context of a specific location and yes. all that. So their perspectives are going to be a little different, and they're going to be concerned with a little different, um, you know, issues. And, you know, as we, as we get to the end of Jeremiah, I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit. Um, you know, Jeremiah then finds himself in Egypt and mm. with, with a lot of the rest of the Judeans. And, um, he, you know, he has concerns about Egypt now and he's critiquing Egypt. And then he directs his concerns at other nations as well. So yeah, all those things, contribute to our understanding of the message and the story where we, we find ourselves. 
Right. One of the things I was thinking about, forgot, and now remembered, I, I think is a, this is a good spot to bring it up. Um, you mentioned the location of the prophets, that the prophets operated in a certain context and spoke to that context. We talked earlier about um, the potter example. Mm. I think it's worth acknowledging that human language has limits, mm. that the as the writers write, they're making a point, but that story, if it's a story or a statement, whatever it might be, has a point it's making and has other points it is not making. <laughs> so the prophets were speaking um, a specific point. Mm-hmm. So the potter point, there was a point, but then there were other things that the prophet was not saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can, I mean, we'll talk about that perhaps when we get to the gospels as well, because it's really easy, and I'm very tempted to do this myself, to take a parable of Jesus and soak it for every little theological point I want to make. And the reality is maybe it's not trying to make all those other points. It's just trying to make a big point. And um, yes, so, yeah, that's a huge, huge thing. And the key thing that you said is every point I want to make. <laughs> I think it's being, you know, I think of it sort of as um, if you have a transparent screen with text on it and your eye focuses on the text, let's say it's a a pane of glass with, with lettering on it. The message is on the pane of glass. You can stare through the pane of glass and see whatever's behind, but that's actually has nothing to do with the message on the pane of glass. So I think it's sort of being aware that there is, there's a dimension, there's a, a, you know, maybe a multi-dimensional in some cases message, but then there's, there's out of focus stuff that is maybe could be extracted, but mm-hmm. has nothing to do with the actual point of the author. I just think that's really important um, just to keep in mind. One of the reasons why I find the 13 week, the rapid reading helps me because I get to see themes. I get to see big um uh, I, I get to see verses in context more. I get to see how different writers address the same issue. And the balance that adds for me is, I just think, priceless. Because I have seen so much preaching within my own um, denominational circle and outside the denomination, some really exciting stuff. But then you look at the text, the underlying text, and just an honest, careful read of the text demonstrates that the author's point was not validated by the text. Maybe the point is perfectly valid, mm-hmm. like perfectly legitimate, mm-hmm. but the the evidence for that point is lacking from the text mm-hmm. used to argue it. And mm-hmm. um, that's I, so, I think we have to be careful with that. So Nathan, we could we could chase a rabbit here, which I think is a very important one, and I and I don't want to you know, throw a wrench into this discussion, but are you um, implying, because if I, you know, if I'm a a lay person sitting in a pew and I, I just, you know, I open my Bible and I'm just happy to read, you know, whatever, like, I think I would perhaps be discouraged in thinking, man, I guess I have to have a PhD in biblical studies in order to interpret it correctly. Um, it sounds a lot more complicated. And can't I just read what's on the page? And, you know, 
get out of it whatever whatever I need to get out of it for the day and you know if I need to be encouraged I can pull a word of encouragement out of it and you know stuff like that so how again that's perhaps a, a, a very long conversation but I'm just you know what you're saying makes me think of that question that might naturally arise I think it's a good and fair question and I I would say that um no, Jesus made this statement. I think it's John seven. If in anybody who wants to know um, of my doctrine, who wants to know the doctrine, will understand it. So I think mm-hmm. that's where we can count on the Holy Spirit. I think there is some latitude, some safe latitude for sort of reading a passage and benefiting from it personally. I would say that some caution is in is um, is also needs to be brought to the table because we can, I mean, if you read a text that says, um, oh, there was a really, oh, the text, Judas went and hanged himself. Mm-hmm. And then the guy went and, and found another Bible text and it said, go down and do likewise. Yeah. So that's a, you know, that's a humorous kind of crazy mm-hmm. example, but it's not so far fetched in the fact that if, if we, if we don't really try to be responsible Bible students. We don't need a PhD. We, ju- we just need to aim to be responsible and seek the Holy Spirit's guidance, mm-hmm. live in the big picture of Scripture. Um, and if we're living in the big picture of Scripture, seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance, living in community with others, those are corrective supports that I may get some wild idea. I've had my share of wild ideas. <laughs> I will also get something from a text that is clearly not the author's point, but it speaks to my heart and it fits. The conclusion fits within the <clears throat> big picture of scripture. It's not the correct interpretation, you might say, of that passage, but it is a reasonable application in the larger <clears throat> Like it is in harmony with the will of God, the purpose of God. And so it's a, in the big picture, it's a safe, inspirational thought, Mm -hmm. even though the the passage itself is not teaching that. Those are the things where I think that, you know, that's okay. Um, As long as we recognize, hey, I'm being inspired by the text, may not be in this case the point of the author but it's moving me toward God and moving me in the journey. I don't know if that helps, but that that's yeah. I mean, on it. this is a, a topic I would love to spend hours talking about because I think it's so important and it's one that I'm I'm still wrestling with. I tried my hand um, at kind of this discussion about how I read the Bible, and I put it on my newsletter, which perhaps we could uh, we could link to or something. But anyway, it's it's such a hugely important topic that I, I don't want people to be discouraged mm-hmm. about reading scripture, thinking that they need to have some, you know, high level advanced degree in order to understand it. But neither do I want people to be reductionist or simplistic mm-hmm. in their reading of scripture. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the Bible is simple enough where anyone can understand the most critical parts of God's story but I also right. think it's deep enough and complicated enough where we will never grow bored with it, right? So that's the right. that's the cool tension, I think. Yeah, send me that link. I'd be happy to include it in the show notes for today's we'll do. podcast. We'll do. Um, and I think the other piece to keep in mind is Jesus specifically promised the Holy Spirit as a guide. 
And so just recognizing that as followers of Jesus, we believe in the presence of supernatural alien insight Mm. through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if the Holy Spirit can be considered an alien because (laughs) God is the, you know, inhabits, this is his home. The universe is his home. Um, But we do believe in supernatural insight. Like we are not in some PhD program trying to sort this out on our own. So I think that should be a comfort that we, we do use the cautions, like do our best to be responsible, but realize that, um, the Holy Spirit is eager and willing to guide anybody who's open to it. And that having a PhD doesn't mean I've, I get it right. There are plenty of theologians <laughs> who are atheists. Yeah, a lot. A lot of them. So, uh, you know, I think that's another caution that if if I do have a strong mind, you might say, you know, maybe I, m- maybe I score in the genius category. Mm-hmm. That doesn't at all guarantee that I'm going to get anything valuable mm-hmm. from Scripture. Mm-hmm. I think, to me, the bottom line is, and I wrote this in the piece that I was talking about, the bottom line is the most important part of reading the Bible, to me, is humility. Mm. Whether you have a PhD or you don't have a third grade education, having humility and saying, I need, as you said, an alien power and when you mean alien in the broadest sense of the term, a power outside of myself mm-hmm. to help me understand what I'm reading. And so if we have that humility, if we are, we have, we, we can have a, a certain confidence that we feel pretty good about things we're reading, but also a certain level of self-doubt that we understand mm-hmm. what we're reading as well. So that humility to me is the single most important ingredient when reading scripture and really doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just was thinking about the Bible writers themselves. You think of the gospels, um, one's written by a doctor, but mm-hmm. three are written by, well, two are written by fishermen and, um, no, I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> tax collector. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Peter, <laughs> a doctor and two fishermen. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I just I realized I wasn't quite ready to make that statement. But that just goes to say, though, yeah. that the variety here, these are people that are that we're reading as authorities on God and what it means to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet they came from a wide variety of variations. There's a, a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, one of one of the pre-Jesus prophets, who's a shepherd. Mm-hmm. One of the tiny prophets. um that we'll come to as we get past Ezekiel. But again, a reminder that, that um, yes, humility, that's, I love that, Sean. We're just going to leave it at that and, and keep moving. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best word, Holy Spirit and humility. I think mm-hmm. those are the two mm-hmm. best mm-hmm. words mm-hmm. in reading scripture and following with courage because God has given this for us to understand and the teacher. And if we're open to it, we'll get it. We'll get Good what work. we need for the moment, and we'll we'll have to grow. They all did. That's part of the story too, as they didn't get it right the first time necessarily, but they got enough to take the next step. Good word. Good word. So back in the text specifically, <laughs> um, just thinking again about these three prophets, I wanted to dwell on that a little bit. Um, we've talked about the time frame. We've talked about. Um, their location, 
um, all three prophets and and um, Sean mentioned this, but they addressed other nations occasionally. So that's mm-hmm. an interesting thing. On this nation thing, it's fascinating that I get the sense that um, the nation story is basically human civilizations get the chance to get it right with how they treat people. Mm-hmm. After a certain time frame, when those human civilizations engage in in um, repeated violations of human of human beings and even of the natural world, at some point God says, "Okay, you you've kind of worn out your opportunity to get this right." That's kind of the flavor that seems to come up with with the Canaanites, with the Egyptians, even with the Babylonians, mm-hmm. with the Assyrians, with Israel. The only exception to Israel is God says. Um, at least that I've picked up, and Sean, you can help me here. But the idea that that God says um, the other nations, well, and, and I'm not even sure I, I get this totally right. But anyway, the idea that God's going to restore Israel. Mm-hmm. But even as I'm saying that, I'm remembering that there seems to be an indication where God says He's going to restore other nations as well as they come back to realign with Him, to turn from their their um, destructive um, mm-hmm. wicked actions, ways. their wicked ways, right? To, to the harm they're bringing to others mm-hmm. um, that God is going to restore them. So again, that's well, just a, I, yeah, speak to that. Well, no, I mean, to that last point, we see that with certainly with Jonah and the Ninevites, right? God, right. God brings them to a place of restoration and repentance. Now, as you say, it is, you know, predicated on, them choosing to align with God's righteous ways and, and ways of love. But um, yeah, I think, I think we do see that. And, you know, Isaiah talks about all nations coming up to Mm -hmm. Jerusalem and, um, and then, you know, in some ways he's also the, the Hebrew scriptures are kind of pointing forward to a time when the light will go to the Gentiles use that mm. term. And, and we saw that in Isaiah. Um, and, you know, just this idea that God's ultimate plan all along was that Israel would simply be a microcosm of the whole world, that mm-hmm. they were called initially, as one Old Testament scholar put it, God initially gives a, an, a, a very exclusive call for optimally inclusive ends. So he calls Mm -hmm. Abraham, he calls Israel an exclusive call. Not Mm -hmm. that God didn't care about the rest of the nations, but he precisely because he did care about Mm -hmm. them, he called these specific people so that they could mediate his love. They could mediate his law. They could spread his law. They could spread his love to these other nations so that they too could be brought into that way of living and that that way of of love. So um, yeah, God always had his had the other nations in his sights, and to the degree that they were willing to align with his way of love, he was working in and through them. Of course, he ultimately wants them to explicitly acknowledge and recognize his his ways, but, um, 
you know, he he's working with the best that he can at the moment. Right. So it's so on that topic, idolatry is a big issue in Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Um, it co- I think it's a big issue in Ezekiel. And I mean, I think you could say it's a big issue in Ezekiel as well as mm-hmm. Isaiah. Mm-hmm. that this idea and and so what's interesting is idolatry isn't an issue simply because it's displacing god from the imagination the attention of the people idolatry is an issue specifically because it degrades it morally degrades the the nation the human being so so the big issue is god says the streets are full of blood you are robbing the poor. The, the leaders are just exercising wanton cruelty. And, and then the reason for this is because they rejected God's covenant and pursued other, the gods of other nations, which, as Jeremiah makes very clear, are no gods at all. Um, fascinating to listen to how many times and how explicitly God tries to dislodge the obsession with idols that the people mm. of Israel have developed. You know, it's interesting along those lines, Nathan, we're jumping way ahead here in the text, but um, Ezekiel 22, kind of the last chapter in this section or the second to last chapter, um, what's fascinating is God does lay this charge at, at his people. And he says, the city sheds blood in her own midst. In mm. you, he's speaking of Jerusalem, they have made light of father and mother. In your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. In you, they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. And then the very next verse, verse 8, Ezekiel 22. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. Mm. So it's fascinating that God connects, directly connects, the Sabbath and this sort of these injustices that are carried mm-hmm. out. And I think it's, it's the Sabbath that kind of is the antidote to idolatry because in the Sabbath, we implicitly acknowledge the mm-hmm. creator who is the singular, you know, almighty creator. So we implicitly say, I am acknowledging that you as Lord and creator and God. And so that is an antidote to idolatry when we practice the rhythm of Sabbath. And then it is also on another level, an act of compassion and justice towards others, because Mm -hmm. in the Sabbath, we extend rest to other people Mm -hmm. and we we give up on the tyranny of production. And Mm -hmm. so it's just really fascinating to me. Um, you know, to your point, idolatry is a huge issue that leads to moral decay and corruption, yes. the abuse yes. of other people. Yes. And the practice of Sabbath is an awesome way to step outside of that idolatrous living and that exploitative living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a plug for Love Shaped Life uh, and, and our course catalog we will have at least one whole course devoted to the Sabbath and its implications mm. in the redemption project. Um, I, I think what the point you make is really important. Sometimes we can look at 
the practices in Scripture, don't worship idols, honor the Sabbath. And we can look at them as sort of optional kind of religious zeal practices. But what the prophets reveal mm-hmm. and what the human story reveals is that these practices aren't about God sort of leveraging his authority over human beings, but these practices are intimately connected to human beings simply being good, decent, moral beings. Mm-hmm. That, that ultimately, a society that abandons the practices of being in relationship with God, that society is going to unravel. It's just a matter of time. That's true of the history of China. It's true of the United States of America. It's true of of um, Russia, Zimbabwe. It's true of Russia. It's mm-hmm. true of any nation. That's one thing that hit me is like the the story of nations is a reciprocal story or or a repeating story, I should say, of the same process. A group of people get a chance to to get loving right. And they get the tools. God's communicated the principles. He's communicated the knowledge of himself so that human beings have a fighting chance at building a civilized civilization. But over time, as that civilization engages in brutality and disregard of human life and abuse of of power, God releases that civilization to the demise of their own actions. And that's this big part of the story is that God begins to step back and allows other nations to come in, which is a whole other part of Ezekiel that hopefully mm-hmm. we can touch on in Ezekiel. Um, mm-hmm. When we well, talk I, about Ezekiel is God's engagement in the story and, and his engagement with one nation to bring punishment on another nation. What does it mean when that language comes up in scripture? So hopefully we can touch on that in, in, um, Episode eleven. Well, I did want to point out and make make it clear another theme though that runs throughout the prophets and especially Jeremiah and Lamentations. We get it, um, Ezekiel to some extent as well, is God's faithfulness, right? Because mm, yes, yes, you know, yes, especially that Jeremiah twenty nine, one of the most well known passages in uh, probably the Old Testament that's often quoted out of context and. You know, I'm not saying it's wrong, but you can appreciate the idea even more when you understand the context where he says, I know the thoughts I have towards you. I know the plans mm. I have for you, you know, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And so this is in the midst of captivity. They are, you know, they're in Babylon and Jeremiah is sending a message to them. He's saying, hey, just settle down. You're going to be there for mm-hmm. 70 years, mm-hmm. um, but I'm faithful. I know this is not going to fully disrupt my plans for you. We're going to get there. You know, Lamentations, the same thing, kind of the climax of the book is great is thy faithfulness, right? Mm -hmm. His mercies are new every day. Um, And and along those same lines, uh, a line that comes up a few times in Jeremiah is this term, the Lord, our righteousness. So Mm. again, it's an acknowledgement that yes, we have been unfaithful, but we're not going to get ourselves out of this mess on our own. Right. We are That's not right. going to, we're not going to perform our way into redemption. We are not going right. to perform our way out of captivity. Yes, mm-hmm. our performance has been terrible. Yes, we've 
abused people, we've exploited people, we have used people, we have been unrighteous. But the way to get ourselves out of this hole is not to dig our own way out, but to rely on the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. So this brings us back to idolatry, right? Idolatry is an act of worship. So when the act of worship is directed at idols, it is morally deforming. Mm-hmm. When our worship turns to, to God in heaven, to the creator, that becomes a morally forming experience that then transforms a person from self-interested to selfless and begins to move them in that direction of loving others. Right? I mean, is that what you're mm-hmm. getting at? Yeah, so there's that's a, definitely, a change in worship. That's definitely part of what I'm getting at. And, par- and part of that change of worship is an implicit and maybe even explicit acknowledgement that my salvation, and I use that in the broadest sense of the term, my redemption, my deliverance, my righteousness, my power and strength reside outside of myself. That yes. It's dependent on faithfulness of this almighty God, that I can't do it myself, that we collectively can't do it ourselves. Yes, when we come to a place of acknowledging the all-pervasive power of God, it transforms me, but that transformation itself, and I, you know, I hesitate to kind of use this language, but it's, I think there's a truth to it. It's a fruit of my dependence on God and not kind of the cause of God's dependence. So yes. And, and and I would say that true worship always brings us to exactly the place you're describing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because true worship illuminates my, my incapacity, mm-hmm. my failures, and my mm-hmm. lack of capacity, and the wonder of God, the grace of God, the beauty of God, which comes up again. You mentioned it comes up. There's Jeremiah 29, which is uh, grace. Um, I have it labeled as grace. There's Ezekiel 11 and 36, new heart language. That's Mm. right along the lines of what you're talking about, that God Mm -hmm. gives human beings something outside of themselves that that then leads to actions that align with his purpose, his way Mm -hmm. of love. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Ezekiel 16, Mm, God's love. That's quite a chapter, man. (laughs) Ezekiel 18 and 20, God explaining his reasoning. I just find it fascinating as I'm listening through. Um, we got to wrap up here, but Ezekiel was, uh, when we took a pause before the holidays or because of the holidays, I was in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was, it's an intense book. Ezekiel is writing <laughs> from the Babylon, the side of the captivity in uh, the Babylonian kingdom. And wow, it's feels so just heavy. But what struck me as I'm thinking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, is the fact that God is communicating so many times and so clearly the cause and the consequences for me was this aha moment of saying, wow, even though it's heavy, this is this is like um, example number one, or whatever you want to say, of God's goodness. The fact that he's explaining himself, the fact that he's persistent, that he didn't just kick him out the first at the first infraction, the fact that it's come to 
uh, human sacrifice, this thing that God says, that didn't even come into my mind. Um, the fact that he endures that long tells me that he's really, truly, he respects human freedom and he's really, truly in it because he loves people and he wants the best. And so even though the messages become heavy, it's out of God's desperation to right the ship before it's hopeless. Mm. And I just saw that heaviness um, as evidence of God's goodness heavy because the story is truly, the historical moment is truly a heavy moment, especially on the shoulders of those who are uh, on the margins, mm -hmm. those who don't have power. And, and it's heavy because this thing is really falling off, uh, falling off the rails, falling apart. And heavy because God longs for something better and can do something better if human beings will just consent to him doing his thing. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful, Nathan. I think that very beautifully and wonderfully sums up what we've been looking at. And, you know, if I were to pick a chapter that kind of encapsulates all that we've been talking about, I just, you just mentioned it and I, I, I threw in my quick endorsement, but Ezekiel 16 is, is quite a chapter where God kind of gives an overview of his history with, with Judah and Israel. And, you know, he's talking about how he basically called them and, you know, they, they weren't worthy of, you know, they were just this kind mm -hmm. of pathetic little nation and God called them and he, he grew them up. He gave them everything. He said it was, it was their time for love. And he basically gave them everything they needed to succeed. And then they used those resources to kind of prostitute themselves out to other nations. And they've been yeah. unfaithful. And he even says their sins are more wicked than the surrounding nations. Mm. And yet God says, kind of the climax, nevertheless, verse 60, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So God's like, like you say, he's recapped the whole history, but he's, he's, He's not giving up on them. And yeah. that is that is a powerful message that I think just really resonates deeply with my my heart and my mind. I think it's a great just recognition that the story of scripture, even in the darkest moments, is permeated and saturated with the goodness of God. It's hard mm. to see because the moments are hard. But when you pause and think about it, you just can't avoid seeing it. You can't unsee it once you start to see the faithfulness and goodness mm. of God. Sean, that was a great word. Thank you mm. um, for bringing that up. Ezekiel 16, about God's incredible goodness. You bet. Powerful stuff. Yes, that's all for this week. So until next time, lean into the love-shaped life. May your journey through Scripture be an expanding discovery of the wonder of God's love. See, experience, live. Loveshaped.life.